1: Barkers of Geraldine has been filling kiwi pantries with jams, syrups, sauces and other condiments and beverages since the late 1960s. The business was founded by Anthony Barker and his wife Gillian as a way of supplementing their farm income, and they've never looked back. Inspired by his father's passion for innovation, their son Michael became general manager in the 1980s and, with the future in mind, a new factory was built. Barkers continues to grow to this day, but Michael's taken a step back. Cosmo Kentish Barnes caught up with them at the Geraldine Museum, where a permanent exhibition celebrates the iconic family business.
2: Well, we've got some of the early gear that um, we used in the in the in the winemaking process back in the 1970s, and. and... We've got a a full-size replica of my father stirring a copper, an old laundry copper full of elderberries, heated with his own diesel burner with a a vacuum cleaner um, Venturi uh, blast system. And so he he was very inventive by nature, and he struck upon the idea of making fruit wines. He, He knew he could make all the equipment himself, and he could—he uh, he knew how to make wine because he'd been making wine since he was a boy, uh, and uh, so that, that's how Barker's Wines was born. And at the time, uh, he and Gillian were sheep farming. They were sheep farming in Pleasant Valley, and of course, the interesting thing is that 54 years later, the business is still located on the old family farm in Pleasant Valley, which is eight kilometres from Geraldine, where Mum and Dad started off as, as farmers and then fruit winemakers. Mm. We will be heading to the factory soon, but um, explain what other things we can see here. Well, here you can see a wide range of the early fruit wines, which were made largely from elderberry and also strawberry and gooseberry and blackberry and raspberry and apricot, and uh, the Mountain Thunder, which was our mould wine, which was developed many years ago, and our liqueurs, creme de cassis, creme de framboise. All of these products were deleted around about the turn of the century after thirty-one years of manufacture, also here we can see the specialty preserve range, which was also deleted. Um, which was called Anthony Barker's preserves, which you used to buy in specialty stores <laughs> throughout the country in the in the nineteen nineties. Uh, a lot of work went into that range, but when we launched into supermarkets around the turn of the century, uh, only 24 years ago, I might add, we, we really got moved most of the range into supermarkets and out of specialty stores, and that's when Barker's, the, the, the wide range of Barker's yeah. products, really kicked off. But in the early days, Michael says the sweetest rewards came from another revenue stream. The real success was as a visitor attraction because everyone that came got offered numerous tipples of an ever expanding variety of very extremely interesting wines and liqueurs and aperitifs and and they got given a guided tour around the very interesting engineering uh, structures and and vessels and contraptions (laughs) it it was the biggest most significant tourist attraction in South Canterbury at its time Mm. and 20,000 visitors a year used to come and it was as a tourism attraction that we really survived because that's why people bought the wine yes
3: and that would have put the barker's name on the map.
2: Yes, and uh, it certainly got us started and gave us a launching pad for when we launched our blackcurrant syrup and the jams and the chutneys and all the products you see in the supermarkets today.
1: Mm.
3: Going back to the farming days, the interest your dad had in fruit started with foraging, I guess, foraging for berries locally.
2: Elderberries growing in the riverbed right next to us were, were the first port of call every year. We as kids used to have to go and pick elderberries and then, during the rest of the year, we used to have to show all the people, all the guests around the the winery and give them tastes and uh, So it was a real cottage industry, but it was based on foraging free fruit we also got wild blackberries. And also we bought regional fruits uh, from Waimati, which at the time was a significant fruit-growing region, and other areas of Canterbury, um, particularly black currants, when they were first put in in large areas in the 70s and 80s. How did you get involved with, with the business? From the age of about 13 or 14, we were serving in the shop and helping out. But uh, I went off to Lincoln and did a horticultural science degree and hoping to go overseas and do a winemaking degree an a degree. But when I got back from Lincoln I never really left because there was a need for me to help and I spent 10 years totally head down engrossed and, and trying to build a business which was very fragile in those days. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So you were working very closely with your parents? Dad and I worked together every day and... Uh, All the staff were were treated to morning tea, lunch, and afternoon tea in the house, in the big farm kitchen. Uh, We'd seat up to 30 people in there, and that's how, for the first 20 or 30 years, that's how the business evolved, with that very close intimacy between all levels of the business. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard to know who was actually in charge back in those days. (laughs) Several
3: years ago, Barkers of Geraldine found themselves in a jam. That was not of their making.
2: We had a large shareholder that had invested in the business um, to help us through one of our growth stages, uh, and they wanted to pull their money out and do other things with it, so we were caught in a bit of a bind. So we had to look around for a major investor to invest, and our search became worldwide, and we were very lucky to secure the what is actually the world's largest premium manufacturer of premium jam, called Bon Maman. Ah, uh, French for grandmother. So we uh, hooked up with this company, and uh, they invested in us, and it's been just tremendous because of the uh, technology transfer and international connectivity in mm. all in all respects.
3: Were you a bit concerned that they might want to move the factory away from Geraldine?
2: No, I, ne- I never was, because I'd been to France to, shall we say interview them, to, to meet with them, and they were interviewing me, <laughs> and uh, it was very clear that their ethos, a family business, uh, based in rural France, in a town even smaller than Geraldine, and that is where their major factory is, and it was clear that they were not in, of the corporate mould of shift to town. We, we spoke the same language, and they see no problem at all uh, having a factory in the country, in fact they see it as a benefit. Is Barker's the biggest employer in uh, Geraldine? Uh, Yes, it would be. Uh, Of course, uh, Fonterra have a big factory uh, in between Geraldine and Tamuka, so we'll call them Tamuka aligned, and we now have, I think, between 250 and 300 staff, and most of them drive to work along country roads to our factory still on the corner of the family farm.
3: Are there generations of
2: people who work there? There's a number of examples of three generational families, and that institutional knowledge is retained, and the passion for the brand is there. And it's, it's a unique business in a unique location with a unique community of interest. Mm. And that's one of the reasons, one of the key reasons, why the Barkers brand, I think, shines so brightly on supermarket stores, because it has these things happening that are driving it in the background. On the short drive from the
3: museum to the factory, I pass a dairy farm and a couple of sheep
2: farms. We're on the road up to the Mona Gorge and we're looking at the Four Peaks mountain range just straight ahead of us there, Uh, the Four Peaks, which we, we look at every day and all the staff sit in the staff room and look up at the mountains.
3: In fact, I can see a number of staff having their lunch now and you're right, this is what they see. Snow on the mountains... Beautiful, pastoral countryside, it's gorgeous. And
2: the Timona River runs right alongside us, uh, which was the source of our elderberries in the early days. Yeah, and the factory is overgrown. Um, I mean, we're looking at the house, which is used as offices. We're standing right beside the farmhouse. The farmhouse. Where you lived as a child. That's right, and uh, it wasn't a big walk to work, (laughs) Uh, and it wasn't a big walk for the staff to come and have morning tea (laughs) and lunch either. And then we uh, we built a a skyline garage, which is still the reception, and and that and then was another building which was built as a warehouse when our woolshed burnt down, and it's up on piles, and that's now an office too. So this isn't glossy Auckland uh, glossy buildings. This is a rural country uh, HQ. Are you still living on the farm? No, I live a few miles up the road. I think they call them kilometres these days. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened to the, uh, to the land? We've only got 30 acres left here now, which gives us room to irrigate our wastewater from the factory and to have room for expansion. And uh, the challenges of setting up a factory on a farm means that you don't have running water, you don't have a connection to sewage, you don't have fibre, you don't have enough electricity running down the roadsides. You basically have to invest in all your utilities and services. But we're so proud to still be on a corner of our family farm.
3: Hi Kim.
0: Hi.
2: Kim Whitman turns up. She's the fruit procurement
3: and research and development manager.
0: So we have a number of growers right throughout New Zealand from the top of the North Island where we get tamarillo and strawberries from right down to soon to get blueberries out of Tuatapri. We have five production lines we can process fruit in many different ways and it means that we can have that innovative outcome for the consumer.
3: Mm. So how many products do you produce here?
0: About 800 different finished goods.
3: That must be quite challenging. It is. From a processing point of view?
0: Yep, from around uh, 1100 different raw materials so in product development it's the biggest pantry you can ever think of for making new recipes.
3: And it's not just for uh, supermarkets and consumers?
0: No, so we have three different markets. We put product in for supermarkets which will be a branded product that you see as well as food service and cafes with their um, food service ranges and then also industrial customers so a lot of the product that comes out of Barkers will be used in other products that you see in the supermarkets.
3: It's too loud inside the factory for my sound device. So Michael describes the production process
2: from outside the main doors. There's a flow from the receipt of fruit to the dispatch of finished goods. So there's an area dedicated to weighing out. And if the fruit arrives frozen, then we have to thaw it and weigh it out and prepare the fruit and then each batch of ingredients which includes the fruit and all the raw materials progresses into the cooking area where in many cases it'll be tipped into a large steam kettle and heated up according to the recipe which is just like following Mm. Alison Holst's recipe step one, step two, step three and uh, at the end of the day you pack it out into your jars hot then you put the lids on hot and invert them it's it's, it's, it's home preserving because mm. we are a fruit and vegetable preserver on a huge on scale a, on a large scale but it all starts just like in a home pantry where you're preserving fruits and hot filling them because you're not adding preservatives and then you have to cool the jars down through water cooling tunnels pack them onto pallets and dispatch them so yeah it's a continuous process from one end to the other over a couple of days
0: mm.
3: And uh, we can see the engineering department from where we are standing.
2: I guess they have a busy time repairing and developing new machines. There's a lot of machinery in there, and uh, when you've got that complication of 1,100 raw materials being made into about 800 finished products, and that's happening every week, every month, there's huge complexity and a lot of engineering to keep the, the production lines... There's a lot of changing over of production lines from one pack format to another pack format to another pack format from one fruit to another fruit to another fruit. So, yeah, big engineering team to keep the place going. Now, in front of the staff room is where you had your farmyard. Yes, I can still in my mind's eye see the sheep yards and the granary and the wool shed and the implement sheds and the workshop which was the hub of the farm, Uh, we had a big fire. Um, I think I was at Lincoln College at the time and I wasn't here, but I think a battery in the truck created a fire and the whole thing burnt down in the middle of the night. And it was a very serious time for the business trying to recover from that.
3: Hello Hello.
2: Behind the factory, a gate opens into a sleepy paddock. This is uh, part of the old farm, and as I said, we've still got 30 acres here. You can see those ponds there, lined with polythene. That's where the wastewater from the factory is stored. When did you put these ponds and wastewater systems in? Oh, these have been in for 20, 30 years, uh, and we gradually keep expanding them or whatever, but uh, we've had to front foot this many years ago. We are walking up
3: to the large ponds and they are what about
2: 10 metres by 80 metres? Oh look, I, I, I can't even remember the calculations, yeah. but they're large. And the water in here has is the water that's been used in the factory. So when you're washing down equipment and washing down the floors, you pick up a bit of fruit, skins and waste. And so in here we're really it's just water with a small level of fruit to fruit sugars. So it's great stuff to irrigate to land because the uh, microbes in the soil love it, Mm. but we adjust the pH so that it's the right alkalinity when it's irrigated and uh, we irrigate it to land. So does it go back onto the local farmland? Yep, some onto our land and some onto a neighbour's land. Oh, I bet the neighbour's quite happy about that. Well look, it does provide water in the summer and as I said the very low level of sugars from the fruit are very welcome uh, to the microbes in the soil so it promotes soil health. And beyond the ponds we can see some paddocks and baleage. You can see a little bit of irrigation just below those eucalypts in the middle foreground. And just in front of us here is a wetland with uh, rushes growing in it. What happens in here? Well, there's, there's a whole lot of fine gravels in here and uh, huge millions and billions of microorganisms live on the surface area of all the gravels and of the roots of these rushes and sedges which are growing in it. And this means that as the effluent flows in from a gallery at one end and flows through the gravels, it is broken down progressively uh, and what's coming out the other end is, is, is virtually clear water. Mm. But what's coming in at the top end is straight out of the loo. <laughs> Luckily we've got the land space to do this sort of thing. Yeah, A well-fed garden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. Couldn't put it better myself.
1: Michael Barker there, talking to Cosmo at the Barker's farm-based factory near Geraldine, where the business also has a new food shop and eatery.